Hello and welcome to Still Watching, the weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Chris Murphy. We're here to discuss the fifth episode of the HBO series The White Lotus, That's Amore. Although pretty much nothing in this episode resembles actual love, but there are a lot of beautiful things <laughs> oh, in yes, the episode. Yeah. Speaking of beautiful things, later in the episode I'll be talking to Adam DeMarco, who plays Albie. Um, I have questions for him about, you know... What's going on with him and whether this fantasy with uh, Lucia is actually good or real? Good or real. (laughs) There is also the ongoing and all-important question of who winds up dead at the end of the show, which definitely got a lot more interesting this episode, I would say. Each week at the end of the episode, Richard and I are going to debate who we think is dead. We'll also fold in your theories about who winds up floating in the Mediterranean. Um, but Chris and I really have to keep each other, you know, in check and, and sort of responsible for our wild predictions. Yeah. And so whoever's right, by, rightest by the end um, gets an Aperol Spritz bought by the other one. Yes. Oh, okay. We just raised well, the stakes mon- even money more. Involved, but yeah. Now there's yeah. money on the line. Yeah. Wow. My theories are going to get so much more specific <laughs> and better now. So, Chris, I think we should start with the ending. And right? what a finale it was. What a finish. <laughs> last, last week, we were sort of cautiously optimistic for Tanya and Quentin and her new cadre of gay friends. and But we were also like, probably something is off. And I think something is decidedly off Yeah, now. something yeah. is not the way that it was presented to us initially. Yeah. Um, maybe Jack is his nephew and they just have a peculiar relationship. Or maybe there's something else going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Uh, the moment when Tanya, sort of in a daze in the middle of the night, stumbles upon Jack just absolutely going to town on <laughs> yeah. Quentin. I was like, yeah, something's not right here. That's yeah. what the first thing that I said. Uh, <laughs> um, but I I feel like, and now I feel silly, that I just took at face value that Jack and Quentin were nephew and uncle. Right. It seems like it might be a rent boy situation. Yeah, yeah, or a... Um, co-conspirator kind of thing. Um, mm. I think that like, I mean, there were times in the old days, uh, I'm told, when um, closeted game. I mean, everyone was pretty much closeted in the old days. Mm-hmm. Um, would kind of take younger men as their wards, or would adopt them even to, or like maybe it was a nephew, or whatever. Like that was kind of a practice. So maybe it's a it's a throwback to, you know, when the original people lived in this palazzo. You know, I don't know what's going I'm on. I'm laughing because that, it, while that could be true, I feel like now Occam's Razor, like, they're lying to Portia and Tanya. Yeah. They're in cahoots. They're going yeah. to <laughs> take her money. And I think there are other parts of this episode that um, point towards something sinister. I mean, we have Jack and Portia on this, like, Palermo evening out, and then mm-hmm. he, like, has them dine and dash, which is, like, Maybe it was just for the sort of illicit thrill of it, but maybe he like literally didn't have money. <laughs> yeah, but it was unnecessary either way because Portia says, I could have paid for that. Right, right. So clearly he, you know, maybe he wanted to just have fun and, you know, sure. have an adventure and she's getting her adventure, but that doesn't really add up or seem necessary considering that they're staying in a huge ass mansion right. <laughs> in Palermo. How does right. he not have money for Arancini? I mean, it's certainly a way to quickly bond with her yeah right we were like now we're now we're co-conspirators we're sort of like bonnie and clyde running from the get her under his spell Mm -hmm. even further especially if his ultimate plan is to take advantage of her and tanya right Mm, didn't consider that it is funny though that like immediately after this date Jack is like, I have to go help my uncle with something, which is like, I have to go fuck. <laughs> you know, I have to go like, fuck my uncle in <laughs> right. the ass. Like, like, like very, like very soon after our date has concluded. Um, yeah. I think the other moment of, uh, well, maybe there too, but like between Quentin and Tanya is they're 
I mean, Tanya is really lucid this episode in a kind of interesting way. I liked it on the yacht. She was like, you were having sex on the boat. I think that's what you're doing. She's kind of like being fun. Mm-hmm. And then later, um, I think it's after the opera, uh, she and Quentin are talking and he seems kind of weary and he talks about his like the one love of his life who was a cowboy uh, in Wyoming. And I'm like, me. is this guy just talking about Brokeback Mountain? I was about like, to is this say, a fake story? Brokeback yeah. Mountain without any of the sex in a tank. Right. Um, I wonder how real that story is. Um, and also they're talking about beauty and he's like that's my vice my vice is not love i i don't suffer for this it's beauty is what obsesses me no no other than the cowboy love's never been my achilles heel it was always beauty i live for beauty i know you do I'd also die for beauty, wouldn't you? Mm. A world without beauty. It's not a world I want to live in. Is he kind of almost telling her that, like, I might have to kill you to keep this palazzo going? Wow. You know, like, or something. I don't know. I feel like there was something where it turned, like, he was almost sort of, telling her something true about himself about what what was actually going on oh that's so that's so interesting because i i didn't think of it as like a direct threat Mm -hmm. to tanya um but i i thought of it more as the the dichotomy or sort of the the separation the difference between love and beauty and sort of what's on the outside and what might be deeper and more on the inside and i tracked that conversation about beauty to the sort of distortion that Polar or that Palazzo looks so gorgeous when you're entering it and those scenes and all the art, it's so pretty at first. And then right when Tanya wakes up in the middle of the night, that beauty becomes sort of grotesque and yeah. disgusting. And the way that it's shot, it becomes ugly in a way. And then she stumbles upon this beautiful man, Jack, doing something. And not that I think gay sex is ugly. <laughs> That's right. not what I'm saying. But doing something that is carnal and yeah and not what you'd expect i not guess poetic not poetic yeah yeah something a beautiful person may be doing something sinister and right and nefarious i think that like um the aesthetically the way that mike white shoots this and 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 how he uses the score is so effectively exactly what you just said about the house turning all of a sudden into a house of horrors yeah um and i was thinking that earlier there's a shot that's kind of a it's you know, kind of pushing in on on the entrance with those big fire pits that are lit, you know? Uh-huh. And from one angle, you're like, oh, what what beautiful grandeur, you know? But then when Mike White puts in the right score, you're like, oh, this is like an entrance to hell. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's amazing how much it can shift just because the music is a little different or whatever. The gates of hell. Yeah. Wow, I did not even consider that this rich gay man, Quentin, couldn't afford to keep his uh, house anymore. Yeah. Although it does go back to what he said at the very beginning where he could have taken subsidies from Italy from the yeah. government if he agreed to let the public in right. but of course he wants to hoard it and keep it to himself and they have that whole sort of funny but very sort of dark exchange where it's like I'd rather keep this to myself and not take any money mm-hmm. than let commoners let other people Yeah and Tanya says oh no the public can't be in the here the public can't come here um so he has alluded to money problems or yeah. you know at least past money problems and again you know I brought this up like last week I think that line of Cameron in episode two, where he says these people, these rich, these Europeans with these big estates who have no money. Have so, like, I think that Mike White was 
leaving us some breadcrumbs. I mean, that's that's my best guess anyway. Mm. Um, and like, you know, Quentin taking Tanya to see what was it, uh, Madame Butterfly? Madame Butterfly. Ugh. Um, at the Opera House, and um, where Tanya met the Queen of Sicily, yeah, which is exciting for her. <laughs> so happy for her, and that was like, oh, Quentin, you're being gay mean, but I was laughing. <laughs> yeah, it was it was gay mean. Um. It was also like, I mean, you know, I, I'm sort of only half joking about like, is Quentin just pulling this story from Brokeback Mountain? But like, is he pulling this whole evening from Pretty Woman? Ugh. Does he know that that's something that like Tanya will be like, oh, you know, we've already seen Tanya earlier in the season be like, I want to be like Monica Vitti. I want to be like, it you know, those be, old movies, like maybe Pretty, pretty Woman. It could be Moonlight. It could, I mean, right. or Moon, what, Moonstruck. what's that? Moonstruck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Barry Jenkins. It could be Moonstruck. It's more Moonlight toward the end. But yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, there are all these sort of narratives he's pulling. He might realize that Tanya is kind of, I don't want to not give her enough credit, but a simpler woman in some mm-hmm. respects and really falls, can fall for glitz and glamour and storytelling and wants to, you know, live an extraordinary and beautiful and cinematic life. Right. But hasn't had that opportunity. And so by pulling these yarns from pretty women, from uh, Moonstruck, from Brokeback Mountain, if you will. Yeah, uh, he might be absolutely ensnaring her into mm-hmm. his web of mm-hmm. lies. Yeah. They all yeah. might be lies. Yeah, and in a way, like him saying the thing about "Would you die for beauty?" might have been a way to test her, which is like, how simple is your conception of this experience? And it proves to be she's not thinking in any sort of deeper level. She's just like, to her, beauty means like literally like nice clothes or a nice house or whatever but he's talking about something much more like i want to live a beautiful life and i need money to do that well now it's actually so crazy and i love the cliffhanger because now tanya actually has all the power she has all the cards right because he at least from the angle that we saw quentin didn't seem to be noticing that tanya was in the room and that she now knows that jack and quentin have this illicit relationship yeah Uh, of, of some kind of nature we're not entirely sure but like um yeah i'm i'm very curious to see how she what she does with that well i think this is going to show how much she cares about Portia, right? Because right. she knows that Jack and Portia mm-hmm. have been having sex on the boat, that Portia really likes him. And so for her to see Jack fucking Quentin, I think it's really going to come down to how does Tanya really feel about Portia and how much does she want to protect Portia? Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that, but that's true. Like, um, And I guess it goes back to that scene on the boat where like, there's a warmth between them. Yeah. You know, in a way that like we haven't always seen between Tanya and Portia. She, Tanya has treated her terribly Awfully. often, but like here and there, increasingly, we are seeing moments of like it, it's a, almost a little like big sistery, or there's a certain familiar familial energy there. Well, it's interesting. I interviewed Haley Lou Richardson for episode four right. of the pod, and I had never thought of this, but Haley said quite astutely that she feels that Portia is in danger of becoming Tanya. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and, and like, so in that light, it's these familiar, these like more like affectionate um, moments are kind of bad for Portia. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, no, you don't want to get too close to this because you might be in danger. But it also might be good for Tanya because Tanya is really only capable yeah. of caring about herself. So if she sees herself in Portia, <laughs> right, right. she might be more right. willing and able to help her. So we should talk about the other sort of um sinisterly sexual aspect that entered this episode which is kind of between Cameron and Harper. Oh yeah. Um a leg touch of the century. So the big kind of opening scene with this quartet story in this episode is that of course Ethan finds the condom wrapper that Harper very purposely left on the Check bathroom condom counter. Wrapper. Mm-hmm. And and you said something last week 
uh, where you were like, no, the lawyer and her is giving him, re- w- w- you know, time to either further implicate himself or, or to explain up. himself. And she says exactly that. She's like, I, ha- I, I gave you all of yesterday <laughs> to come clean and you didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. You just lied to me. Yeah. You met two hookers at the bar and brought them back to our room and Cameron had sex with them on the couch. I can't remember because like I was wasted, but what were you doing? Were you just watching? I was honestly, I was just like, I mean, I, I, I was just sitting there. I, 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 I was going to bed. They came in and then, I mean, I don't know. I can't remember. I was really out of it. And you didn't do anything with these hookers? No, I didn't do any of the sex stuff. I mean, one of them, like at one point, one of them tried to kiss me, but I freaked out. So nothing happened. I promise. Okay, look, we took Molly. (laughs) I mean, I know that sounds bad. Yeah, it sounds really fucking bad. I was gone for one fucking night, and you did Molly with hookers? Yeah. And I come back and find a condom wrapper on the couch? What the fuck? Look, I swear to you, I didn't do anything, okay? I'm not lying. You already have lied to me. No, I have not. When have I lied to you? I haven't lied to you. Yes, you have. I gave you every chance yesterday to tell me what happened, and you fucking bullshitted me. Well, I didn't tell you everything, yeah. To say the least. It's so funny because that argument, which was so fantastic and well acted on both Ethan's part and Harper's part, I did find myself, and this is going to maybe show my um, uh, deep flawedness, I did find myself sort of siding with Ethan in that, like, it could have been so much worse. He could have engaged. He didn't engage. While he lied to her repeatedly, 100%, she caught him red-handed i do i could understand ethan's frustration being like you know how much self-restraint it would take in that situation potentially if you're mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. want to go off and party with the boys and or or attracted to me and lucia to say no to that and he as far as we can tell he actually did yeah so yeah. i thought that argument honestly not to be a both sides there but i understood i could see both sides of that yes i can certainly see harper saying like you had hookers in here and you were on mall or ecstasy. Whatever. I leave like, for one night. Like and literally you... I was gone for 24 hours and this is what happens. Um, but I also think that like the opportunity that Ethan potentially missed out on. And I think it's that's part of the character is that he isn't he's a sort of guileless person. He's 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 honest to a fault, maybe. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, he wasn't being honest here, but he's sort of like he doesn't think strategically. No. And the best strategy with Harper would have been. Oh my god! Oh my god! You were right. They're totally fucked up. You won't believe what he did last yeah. night. And I'm really sorry it happened in our room, but I was kind of fucked up. And make it a conspiracy between you two. Yes. Like make, include make it, her. Yeah, exactly. Because she wants that. She was. She's been looking for these cracks in this relationship because she and feels he, far apart from right. him in comparison to right Daphne and Cameron. So I think that was Ethan's misplay. Yeah. Um. And now things are weird between them. And Harper, I guess, is just trying to say, well, if you can have a crazy night out, I'm going to have a crazy day and Harper night. Harper is yeah. on one. She yeah. looks amazing. She is drinking like a fish. She, I, When Harper turned in that way, I was 100% here for it. Yeah. It's like, don't get mad, get even in a way. Um, but I think, not to sort of toot my own horn, but I think what I said last week or last time we had this pod Harper being a bad survivor player is true because she can't sit at the winery or at dinner for more than like two minutes without alluding to the fact that she knows the big secret, that she knows what happened. Right. And that sets Cameron off. Mm -hmm. Cameron now knows that she knows. He knows that she knows. He kind of takes Ethan aside and it's like, dude, what the hell? And he's like, it wasn't my fault. You left a condom wrapper in my hotel room, you idiot. Like, and then, and Cameron kind of softens in that moment. He's not mad at Ethan anymore. He's like, okay, I screwed up, whatever. 
And then he has to scramble and be like, how do I deal with this? That led me to believe the great listener theory, or maybe to put more um, credence to the listener theory that maybe Daphne and Cameron have been plotting this whole entire thing, because mm-hmm. that does seem like a pretty rookie mistake to leave a condom that's wrapper true. on the bed. That's or, true. I mean, on the couch. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, he was kind of wasted, but like, true. yeah, I mean, this might all be part of a ruse. I think that later in the episode, Daphne kind of emerges in steps into a more sinister light in <laughs> some ways like everyone is just being really weird at the winery at the and sp- especially at dinner and then at yeah. post dinner when they're sort of outside in the, the smoking courtyard cigarettes. smoking and everyone is just i mean like cameron has already groped harper under the table at yeah. dinner and now she's staring at him he's staring at her and then there's daphne who's doing like just weird stuff and saying weird things i'm sure whatever happened wasn't a big deal And if anything ever did happen, just do what you have to do to make yourself feel better about it. I have this trainer in the city, Lawrence. He's so handsome, he has blonde hair and nice big blue eyes. He's really funny, too. I spend more time with him than Cameron sometimes. Because he's so busy at work. Such a cutie. Want to see a pic? Yeah, I was legitimately confused and sort of scared. Not scared, but nervous about her conversation with Harper, where she talks about her trainer. Mm -hmm. Um... And I'm not going to lie, when she was handing over the phone, I was like, oh, it's going to be a dick pic or something, sure. or like yeah. he's shirtless or something. Picture Jack. <laughs> yes, picture, literally. It's Jack. <laughs> yeah. ah, like literally, that just blew my <laughs> mind. It's literally Jack. That would be crazy. Um, but I expected something sort of, uh, you know, like that, right? right. Yeah. And then what we see is a photo of her kids. Uh-huh. And I was, at first I was confused. And then I noticed, oh, wait, the older one has blonde hair and really blonde. Big blue eyes, mm-hmm. just like she described the trainer as having. Right, right. So is she telling Harper that that kid is the trainer's kid and not Cameron's? I mean, maybe. I mean, it might also just be kind of a sad moment of drunkenness of be like, oh, I meant to show you the fun thing, but here are the kids. Here's where my heart really is or something. I don't know. Well, Megan Fahey is such a great actress that yeah. the way that she takes the phone and slams it down is like, oh, I, I was like, okay, that, there was something very purposeful right. and very right. sinister about yeah. what she just did. Yeah. And then she looks Harper dead in the eye and is like, do yeah. what you have to do right. to get through your marriage. I was like, okay, I do think now my... My prevailing theory is those kids, at least one of those kids ain't Cameron's. Mm -hmm. I mean, she has alluded to already, like, I do my own things, too, you know, and we don't know how serious that's been. I think it's also like it's kind of fun to think about in the way that Cameron and and Daphne um, do or don't at all relate to like Quentin in that, like, Cameron is the one who says these people like they're house poor. You know, (laughs) they, they have these mansions, but they don't have any money. Yeah. Is it possible Cameron and Daphne don't have any money? Oh, I think it's very possible. You know, this was their last bit of spending to get this money from Ethan. I really want to talk about Ethan and his mimetic desire. And Ethan reveals that Cameron would often sleep with the girls that he had crushes on in college. And that he still thinks about that. And that's still tough for him. And there's a real darkness in his eyes when he says it. And it's the kind of thing where, like, 
we've I mean, I've certainly had moments when I've had something I'm angry about bottled up. And then I it finally kind of comes out and you're almost vibrating with it. You're just like and it's kind of it's kind of scary. It was scary. After that sort of monologue about mimetic desire and his seething, his vibrational seething of anger, I was like, oh, Ethan probably murdered somebody. Maybe it's Ethan. Not to jump to the end, but I I was very much like Ethan just shot way up on my list of potential suspects. Right, because Cameron says, "Well, you didn't ha- you didn't have more status than me, or whatever." And he's like, "Not then, not then." <laughs> and like, there's that glint in his eyes again, and it's like, Ethan, I think, has sniffed out Cameron's desperation, yes, and is like in like loving it, you know, yeah. in a way. And like now he's at, at the very least, he doesn't share a lie with him. Like Harper knows, yeah. so Ethan is back on that side of things, and now he and then Cameron is the sort of in in this picture of things, like the the weak figure in this person. Yeah, but even so, I'm going to push slightly back on that because even even though that's true, Ethan was the loser at dinner. Ethan's sitting mm-hmm, there, they're mm-hmm, making fun of him. Mm-hmm. Harper's like, I had a threesome, not with Ethan, with Paola and Oscar. And Ethan sort of looks kind of tucked, for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah. And then, right after the mimetic desire monologue, Cameron's touching his wife's leg under yeah. the table, yeah. sort of taking exactly what Ethan has. He's doing it again. He's doing it again. Yeah. So yeah. as though he's high status, he's also still the lowest status at the table. Right. Well, it goes back to what Daphne said in the, the at the luncheon note. These just a sad, all men are just wandering alone. Mm-hmm. I think the big question I have that is certainly compounded and complicated by the scene in the courtyard after dinner is does Harper, what is Harper's feeling on this? I mean, clearly the, the, the breadcrumbs have been dropped for... A, Har- a Harper Cameron sort of thing from yeah. back to episode one when he's naked in her hotel room. He swims, you know, he kind of surprises her in the leg. water. Like clearly there was something here. I guess the question is, does Harper want it? And I think what's so brilliant about the show is I think kind of yes, I think kind of no. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think all is healed there and things are fracturing yeah. between Harper and Ethan and Cameron. I don't know if it's by design by Cameron or if he just can't help himself. Now I'm like, oh my God, everyone's a con artist. It's Quentin, it's Jack, it's Cameron, it's Daphne. Wait, Cameron and Daphne might literally have money problems because Cameron hasn't paid Lucia yet. Right. Or they're... He's paid her like a a bit of it. A bit of it, but he hasn't paid her all of it and he keeps sort of deflecting. That is another... I I think that, wow, that theory is getting more and more... uh, in my mind yeah i think after a slow burn this episode is where like you're like okay now i i can see people on the precipice of actual danger yes and now everyone is in it together every yeah sort of separate group is sort of connected by one way or the other and we see that in that wonderful hotel dinner scene where lucia walks by or no, sorry, Cameron walks by Lucia and Albie at dinner mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then they go and sit down and then Dominic's looking at Albie and Lucia and it just, mm-hmm. it's all a huge fucking mess. Yeah. Still watching, we'll be back in just a moment. And when we return, a conversation with Adam DeMarco and theories about who's dead. Well, we should go into Albie and Lucia and, and all of that. <laughs> um, big things this episode for, it's funny, this this. The episode opens and closes with sex, right? Yes. Two very um, different sex scenes yeah, for Albie and yeah. Lucia. Albie is um, having fun with her, doesn't realize that she's a sex worker. <laughs> and then there's this scene that is 
awkward and sad, but also kind of sweet the morning after because I think they genuinely both had a good time. I think that is I think it's a I think that's true. And I think it's very much a two things can be true at once. Mm -hmm. Yes, Lucia is a sex worker. But yes, I think she actually had a good time with Albie and likes him. And I think we see that like of Albie or that affection for Albie grow over the course of the episode. I think she's into him. I also think that it's possible that she has affection for him, but also has ulterior motives. I think there is that scene between her and Mia Mm -hmm. um, where... Uh, right before Mia runs off and tries to be like, hey, can I sing again? Yeah. Where Lucia's like kind of, she's clearly thinking through something. And she says, I don't know, maybe we're not going to be punished. <laughs> and I think that's where she's like, I like him enough. Mm-hmm. I think I can get him to take me back to California. Wow. I didn't even go all the way there. I, I think she's like, this is my ticket. This is my ticket. This is a sweet guy. He's nice to me. Yeah, he's probably not for forever. But like, he's rich. He's young. He's handsome. Let's everything is lining up here. And maybe this is my way out of this life that I was really regretting just like the other day on the beach. You know, wow. I did not consider that. I think what complicates that is that she does know that that's Dominic's son who she did have sex with, which now Albie and Dominic are Eskimo brothers. So we (laughs) do have to we must say that. Yeah, that is true. Um, So. But I don't know how concerned she didn't seem that concerned when Dominic confronted no. her about it. No. On the at the pool. I think that she is just like, do you want to tell your son you fucked me? Yeah. If so, you do. OK. Let no, yeah. no sweat off my back. This but he a, doesn't want he doesn't <laughs> want that, that information out there, which also made me worried. Mm-hmm. Mia's making moves in this episode um, in a way that uh, yet again, all these characters are moving towards risky things or already in risky things. And essentially, she's kind of blackmailing Valentina. Oh, yeah. In a way. Or I'm, trying to seduce her or both, you know. I mean, Mia's uh, Anna Kendrick from the movie Camp Moment. You know, the piano player is fucked. I'm ready. The show must go on. <laughs> yeah, Let me yeah. play the piano. Uh, if I, only she'd sung Ladies to Sue Lunch. <laughs> I really, oh, if she had sung Ladies to Lunch, I would have absolutely screamed. Um, but that's Amore. It was also great. Um but yeah, so she's she's found an opportunity, right? And mm-hmm. she's like, I'm gonna take it, and I don't. And now she's feeling empowered by the sex work, and senses pretty intuitively that Valentina is very lonely, yeah. so lonely that she fires Porocco from the front desk. Yeah, moves just, him down to the pool. Moves him down to the pool just for talking with the object of her affection, Isabella. Um, and I, yeah, I think that could definitely end pretty poorly for Mia. I think. She's going down a slippery slope. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, here the show might be kind of commenting on like, look at what, you know, people in the lower, in like the service class or whatever, like look at what they have to do to get ahead. They yeah. have to what, like take a moonshot with some <laughs> sweet, dopey, rich kid and like ah. hope hope that that gets you a plane ticket out of this place. Yeah. Do you have to kind of seduce and blackmail and all that stuff, you know, in the case of Mia, like, like here are people scrambling to... um elevate their station let's say um the art the sad irony being like well the people above them in the economic ladder are doing horrible things too. i do want to know what you think about the conversation between bert and dominic at dinner i thought that was a really nice uh, and thoughtful illustration of like you can be in a tight-knit family and and two different people within that family have wildly disparate perspectives on like what that family was yeah i really think that um, Bert is like, no, we loved each other. And I think he means that, you yeah. know, like I think he thinks that and whether or not he that means he was totally oblivious to his wife's pain 
Or if that means Dominic just saw it differently because he was younger and maybe didn't understand an arrangement they had or whatever mm-hmm. it was, you know, I think they're both right and they're both wrong. Yeah, it's a two things can be true at once yeah. scenario. And I do love that F. Murray Abraham, who no criticism to the White Lotus, but I don't feel like we've gotten that much from him. Yeah, yet. I'm. We someone had written in. Um, I think it was Hannah in Italy uh, about weeks ago about. Um, anticipating their trip to his hometown yeah, uh, or to his family's hometown. I- I'm wondering if maybe that's going to be a bigger um, Bert episode. I also think that we have to take note of him falling by the pool and then he shows up th- in this episode yeah. and he- he's like, oh, I dropped the remote or something and I hit my head. And it's like, this guy is like not in great shape. Yeah, yeah. he's falling a lot. And that second fall, I think, happened off camera. So maybe yeah. that's not what exactly happened. Like we didn't see him. Yeah, we head. don't know. So yeah. that could be a whole other line or something nefarious yeah. there. Um, I don't think you bring F. Murray Abraham into the show to do what he's done like so far. fun one-liners yeah. and sort of like... I mean, maybe maybe that's all, that's the purpose he's going to serve. But like, yeah, I mean, I think that he his character has been a little bit, I mean, really in the background. And so, I don't know, maybe he'll move uh, toward the front. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. So, Chris, you mentioned Alessio, which uh, is seems to be Lucia's pimp. Yeah. Um, where kind of felt like in that street scene that maybe Albie was faced with a sort of like, what do I do here? Yes. You know, a, a, a sort of small crisis of masculinity, a sort of force majeure moment. Yeah. You know? Does Albie have to protect Lucia now? And yeah. does he, you know, yeah. try to, you know, does he murder somebody or try to fight this mysterious Alessio who we don't know if he exists yet. We just see her talk to some guy in the middle of the street. Yeah. That could be Alessio. That could not be Alessio. Anybody. I, I, up until this point, didn't think that Lucia had a pimp. I thought she was all sort of like sisters doing it or for themselves vibes. Right, right. So I'm still sort of skeptical about the Alessio of it all. Yeah. I think, you know, and I think that w- what I like about sort of Albie's plot line is that um, what's happening isn't always clear. Who, how people are feeling isn't always clear. Um, I was curious about Albie. Mm-hmm. So I went to the source. Ooh. I talked to Adam DeMarco. Oh, um, And, uh, you know, he... He had some. I think he's he's very positive on on who Albie is. I oh, think wow. in, a, in a kind of sweet way. So um, why don't we listen to that interview now? Well, I'm so happy to be on the line now with Adam Demarco, who plays Albie on The White Lotus. Hello, Adam. Hi, Richard. How are you? Good, thanks. So uh, we're really excited to talk to you because uh, my co-host Chris and I like we think that Albie is one of the most kind of almost hard to figure out characters. We can't tell is he good? Is he a nice guy who's actually bad? So I'm curious just to start, like, what were your conversations like with uh, Mike White in kind of building the character from the beginning? Yeah, I think Mike and I were were very cognizant of playing up Albie's sweet side and his sensitive side and his empathetic side. Um, in terms of, like, being a nice guy, I don't know if there is such a thing in the world. <laughs> like, uh, I think everyone you know, has everyone, people contain multitudes. Everyone has moments where they are, you know, the hero of their story and like the villain of their story. Um, and I think, you know, reading online at what everyone's saying on Twitter and, and Reddit about Albie now is like so interesting um, because like you were saying, you, you and Chris can't figure him out. And I, I, I think the same could be said for like a lot of characters in the show, you know, which is just a, a testament to, to Mike's writing. Where it's like any one of these characters like could turn out to be 
you know, the villain of the, the season or, or, and it would be satisfying or, or not. There's obviously what's on the page in terms of the character, mm-hmm. but for you as an actor in, in your kind of process before filming and during filming, is it important that you have a deeper sense of where this character is coming from sort of morally, ide- ideologically? Yeah. And then these are conversations I had not only with Mike, but with Haley Lou and, and, and Michael Imperioli and Murray, just trying to find out where he kind of sits in the greater scheme of the show. And then, you know, just trying to tr- connect with those aspects of, of my personality and just finding, you know, those similarities and those ways into the character. Um, and then a lot of it also was, I don't know if the word holistic is the right word, but just kind of, you know, trying not to overthink things and just kind of play as what you said, what was on the page and just kind of let the writing kind of speak for itself. I'm curious, if, I mean, if you want to share, like, what, what do you think some similarities are between you and, and Albie? Oh, God. <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I think we're, we both live extremely in our heads at times and, and can overthink things to the point of um, debilitation at times. Um, Albie has this obsession of, of not being like his father. But, the, you know, the more you obsess over something, the more likely you are to um, self-fulfill that prophecy or to, like, manifest that even in an unconscious way. Um, so, yeah, that was really interesting to see kind of how those scenes unfolded as we as we kept filming. Yeah, Albie is certainly concerned with not repeating the sins of his father. Um and, and the sins I, of his grandfather. And the sins of his grandfather. And I think in a more broad sense, like the grand, sins great of like, grandfather. Yeah, yeah right. The sins of masculinity, you know. Um and in so doing, he seems to sort of alienate Portia. They have like a friendly rapport, but like that spark that he felt for her is not really reciprocated because she's on her own sort of journey. How do you see like those interactions between Albie and Portia? Like, is anyone in the right or are they both kind of confused in their own ways i think they're just two trains passing in opposite directions and they had like this brief stop at the same station but uh they can never really you know get on board with each other they keep having these missed connections or um wow this analogy just keeps getting better and better (laughs) the first time i've used it uh well no Haley and i had this handshake in sicily where we would go for a high five and then intentionally miss it every time and sometimes i would forget that handshake and i would go to high fiver and then she would miss and i'd be like oh right and or vice versa and then looking back on it that kind of is our whole character's dynamic like they never really hold hands (laughs) or, or or connect in that way and maybe you know in episode five it's something that albie finds unexpectedly with lucia who He's not aware as a sex worker, um, and she kind of likes that about him. I mean, how do you read this kind of budding attraction between the two of them? Yeah, I think what Albie finds in Lucia and what Portia finds in Jack, uh, Leo Woodall's character, is that they both find that fire that was missing. Um, I think what Albie likes about Lucia is that he... she 
she brings him out of his head and into the moment and just kind of takes the lead on a lot of things. And then Portia's maybe expecting Albie to take the lead on things, even to the point where she's giving him like the note of being more aggressive. Uh, but then when he tries that, it's still not reciprocated. So it's just a lot of mixed signals and mixed messaging. And I think, you know, both of them just kind of find what they're looking for in these uh, two new uh, spicy uh, Europeans. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that sort of like aggression or not aggression, but sort of assertion, you know, mm -hmm. take charge kind of thing. That is such a tricky thing, I think, for a lot of young straight men or any man really to 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 navigate mm -hmm. um do you think that albie's thinking on it is where it should be like is he the right kind of enlightened about it or is he being a little too i mean there are some scenes where it's like I, i've said to chris on on this podcast like albie's right but he's kind of right in an annoying way <laughs> you know yeah how, how do you view that yeah i mean a lot of my female friends you know have, have told me you know the the large percentage of the time when there is a vibe there, you know, don't ask, just like kiss, kiss the person, right? It's mm -hmm. so much hotter. But then there's always that, you know, one out of 10 times where it's, you know, you just have misread the signals or whatever. And I think Albie is, you know, would be mortified to not, to the point where he can't err on the side of, of caution or whatever that expression is. He, he prefers to err on the side of caution at, at all times, even when there is a, a glaringly obvious, obvious, uh, you know, landing signal. Like, yeah, I mean, I think that the, that the the way that Albie is trying to live more in the moment, and, and Lucia sort of brings that out of him, mm -hmm. is complicated by the fact that after this successful night together, this enjoyable night together, where both parties seem invested, um, not just in a transactional sense. Lucia says, "Okay, do you have the money? Like, do you think that makes Albie start to doubt his, that assertion and you know his kind of new groove, um, or or how do you think he processes the fact that like, oh, Lucia was kind of entering into this as a business thing, and I wasn't." Yeah, I think he's definitely shocked and and thrown off initially. He's he's a pretty innocent guy. I don't think he, you know, a lot of the other characters in the show, like Cameron and and Ethan, were aware that there were these hookers in the hotel, even his, his dad and his grandfather, but he would, maybe didn't even know that that was a thing that happens. And then now that he's being confronted with it, he has to kind of face his own actions. And I mean, throughout the episode, I think you see him kind of come to terms with it in a modern way where he checks in with, with, with Lucia, makes sure she's not part of like this, not being exploited by some guy. And he kind of makes it work for himself in a pretty modern progress progressive way um where he sees it but you know as long as it's her choice then i guess what's the problem um yeah we do have this looming figure in i think alessio was the name um alessio of, yes yeah maybe lucia's pimp or somebody like that you know obviously i don't want you to spoil anything that's coming but like are we right to kind of sense a, some mounting danger or in, in Albie's kind of portion of the story? I mean, it certainly seems that way. I, you yeah. know, that their, their cute little ice cream date was, was ruined by Alessio. So, yeah, it certainly seems like there's, there's something coming, coming, coming for him. I'm curious about Mike White as, uh, as someone to work with and for. Um, what, what kind of 
style does he have? Was he very conversational with you about like who this character was? Was he just letting you do your own thing and then kind of editing after a take or how, how did that all work? And he's very, he's a very observational guy. He doesn't really miss anything. You'll have a conversation with him. And then weeks later, he'll reference a micro expression or a micro mannerism you had done and, and try try to bring that to the scene. So yeah, he's a very observant guy and just wants to bring the truth of, of you into your character, um, which is a really vulnerable way of working, but ultimately very rewarding when you see the finished product. And I'm, I'm watching everyone else's scenes and I get glimpses into them. I'm like, oh, there's, you know, that's Haley. That's, that's not Portia. That line was like Haley. And can sometimes he lets us improvise or ad lib as well. Um, so that's pretty cool. And then also in terms of just direction, he, we, we just kind of played around uh, with different, he, he'll let us do our own thing and then just kind of come in and massage and give himself options for editing. But it's very playful um, and uh, yeah, very collaborative. And then you're also working with Michael Imperioli, F. Murray Abraham, these two, you know, kind of legendary actors, you know, Michael Imperioli on one of the greatest TV shows ever made, Every Murray yeah. Abraham, obviously, Amadeus, a huge body of work. Yeah, I think what I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah, what, 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 what was your experience with them? I mean, were they, uh, I mean, were they imparting wisdom to you or how did that work? Um, yeah, the, the biggest, I mean, the kind of the biggest wisdom I got from them is just, just to, figure it out for myself, keep doing what I was doing and, and that I, you know, deserve to be at that table with them, that literal and, and metaphorical table. Um, they were very supportive. Uh, I loved rehearsing with them. We would organize our own rehearsals and just read all seven episodes in a row, which I found super helpful. And, and it's not something that, you know, the younger generation of actors really do as much. A lot of it is kind of like, let's save it for the day and figuring it out on the moment, you know, figure it out during the moment of, of the take. But I've always loved rehearsing and it was great working with, you know, Murray's classically trained and then Michael's a big theater guy as well. So that was really cool. And um, I was obviously really intimidated when I, when I found out who was playing my fake family, I was like, I knew it would be insane, but, uh, you know, getting to meet them, the second I met them, I just felt this instant kind of familial collect connection. And that never really, it just strengthened throughout filming. And, uh, you know, during our rehearsals, we would also talk about our relationships with our fathers and our relationships with uh, sex throughout our lives and what we thought of the Godfather. It was just really fun getting to know them on that level. And, you know, I still, we still text each other in our cute little group chat and yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's nice. That's cool. Um, well, we're almost out of time, but, um, and I'm going to, I guess kind of end with maybe a difficult question. I hope it's not, but like if you had to kind of, uh, I don't know, say that the show, this season of the white Lotus has like a thesis to it. Like what, what, what is it about? Um, oh do, do you have an idea of that? I mean, I know that's like, that can, it can be about so many things, but. I'd say for me that I don't know if it's a thesis, but just like one of the central messages is just how important communication is and just how important it is to 
have conversations and have tough conversations, especially with people you love. Um, and that it's, it's very rare. Things are very, very rarely uh, black and white. Um, it always meets somewhere in the middle. Um, they should call the show the Gray Lotus. Sorry, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that that communication is so interesting because, especially for people of Albie and Porsche's age and, and Lucia's age, maybe it's just because the the demands of television, but like they're doing this communication in person. You know, yes. so many young people are texting or whatever, DMing, you know. And I mean, do you think that like... I just think there's nothing yeah. more important than open and honest communication and, and hearing... And genuinely listening and hearing other people's points of view and perspective and, and, and leading with love, especially now, um, more than ever. Uh, yeah, I guess that would be my thesis. Well, we certainly hope that love is what Albie has found with Lucia and she with <laughs> nice. him. But I, I don't know if that's really where Mike White stories tend to go. Um, <laughs> but we will eagerly uh, await the answer to those questions. Um, in the meantime, Adam, really, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And uh, my my tip for anyone listening who was in the show is definitely to watch the finale live because, you know, things could get spoiled or tweeted about pretty quickly, you know? Absolutely. Definitely get, get caught up and, and try to watch it in real time if you can. I think it's appointment viewing. Um, all right, Adam, thanks again. Thank you. Have a good one. All right, Chris, it's time for uh, the most important segment of this episode and every episode of Still Watching the White Lotus, Who's Dead? Um, just a kind of housekeeping note, we are recording this early because uh, of the Thanksgiving holiday. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Um, so, uh, or we hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess so we don't really have any new listener theories, so it's just going to be you and me. We, we, we don't have any cover. Yeah, no, there's, it's just us this week. My new theory is that everyone's dead, <laughs> except for Daphne. <laughs> I think that's probably the most yeah. compelling. After this episode, I'm sort of right there with you. But if it's not everyone, who do you think it is? Okay, who do I think is the most dead? Yeah. If I had to rank who's dead, who's most likely dead, uh, after this episode, I'm going to have to put Tanya and Portia way up there mm -hmm. because of what we saw from Dream Team Jack and Quentin. Clearly, they're up to something. And there's lots of allusions to uh, women falling from heights or yes. betrayals and murders Madam in Sicily. Madam Butterfly, <laughs> yeah, even. Madam, they go to yeah. see Madam Butterfly. She doesn't yeah. make it out of that yeah. opera. Sorry, right. no spoilers, but you should know that. Right. Um, so there are too many arrows and too many things pointing to the demise of Tanya and also Portia now. They're also away from the villa. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm worried for them. But beyond that, my new uh, wild card theory is that Ethan, uh, Ethan snaps on Cameron. That Ethan, mm. things go, and that, da and that Daphne finds Cameron, her husband, face down in the sea. Right. Right? Right. Ethan has a bone. He has this bone to pick with Cameron. It's been years in the making. He, Cameron is probably going to fuck Harper. Let's say it. I'll say it. Right. I feel like yeah. that's where we're heading. Yeah. And if Ethan walks in on that, I absolutely think he could snap and kill Cameron. So that's my that's my fun new theory for the week. I think it could also be Ethan finds out about Cameron and Harper if that's what happens with them. 
And I don't know how it comes about, but they somehow, both men, end up back on those goddamn jet skis, angry at each other, and this time one of them doesn't swerve. Whoa. And they both hit each other, and Daphne thinks they're off somewhere. She's having one last beach outing before they take the plane home. Totally. Maybe that maybe it's kind of an accidental thing where these two men, these two lonely wandering elephants, yeah, just crash into each other and kill each other. They go head to head, and jet skis are so dangerous. My parents oh. always told me that. They're yeah, they're the ATVs of the sea. <laughs> yeah, really, truly. So that actually, that that could be that could be true. Yeah, I'm feeling now my dial it's or the pendulum is swinging more to one of the foursome dying more so mm-hmm. than an Albi uh, Mia a Lucia. Yeah. It's that foursome got so dark this episode. So yes. like and like full of tension that um is new and vengeful. Yeah, yeah vengeful. Exactly. There's That's a lot a of yeah, yeah. vengeance anger. Mm. Well, if you have a theory about who dies or really any other comment or question about the White Lotus season two, you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail dot com. Well, that does it for this week's episode. Again, you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail dot com with theories or anything else really. Um, if you don't want to use email, there's always Twitter for now. Yeah, we don't we, know we, how we long know. that's going to last. As of recording, there is still Twitter. Uh, <laughs> um, um, I'm on there uh, as Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Chris Stress, C-H-R-I-S-T-R-E-S-S. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our editor and producer is Dave Gonzalez, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes and Katie Rich. We had technical assistance from Scott Lee. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer, and our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next week for episode six. Look forward to seeing you then. Bye.